Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Matt Neal. He is the UK MD of Sikkim. We're going to be looking at how organizations can become disruptive, create new experiences, fill gaps or ambiguities in their customers' market. We're going to be looking at how we can get started. How do we invest in the right areas and place the right bets? How do we uh, make sure that our customers' unmet needs are being met? How can we identify blind spots such as powerful influencers who have a vested interest in the status quo? And how can you develop better IP products? Hopefully, by the end of this, you'll have a practical cheat sheet on how to do this and uh, how to ensure that you're uh, generating a really powerful competitive advantage. And how do you develop your business safely and quickly? Matt, welcome. Thank you. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history, please? Yeah, absolutely. So hi, everyone. I did a law degree and I'm a chartered accountant by trade originally. Uh, you can be hated twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud of, but, but quickly moved on to do 15 years of EY in their manage, management consulting business. By the end, I was building digital products and platforms with clients. Uh, after that, I moved to IBM uh, for two years um, where I, I kind of learned probably, you know, IT from sort of top to bottom, including R&D. Uh, and now I've been at Cyclum for 12 months, uh, you know, primarily helping clients to build products um, and create competitive advantage as a product engineering and consulting company. Really interesting space that you occupy. Um, I mean, help me understand something. Everyone talks about disruption as if it's a good thing. But in my experience, most people look at disruption as a pain in the ass at best and something to be quite scared of. How do you manage to sell that concept when the natural tendency is to fall back on the status quo? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, I mean, everyone has a bit of a natural hatred of change, right? And if my iPhone updates with a new iOS version, it annoys the hell out of me for two days. And then I kind of, ease off and actually I think maybe it is a little bit better. So there is no doubt there is always a natural resistance to change, right? So that, that's, I guess, part of the job. But, but I think disruption, you probably look at it a different way. There's a lot of power in making people's lives easier and better. Um, and I think if you manage to succeed in that, it will always overcome the resistance to change or, or the other things or, or the price of an iPhone. You know, the reality is if you can find that, make people's lives, customers' lives easier, you will win. Okay. So given that we have all this, a natural tendency to fear uncertainty, because that's the reality. People don't fear change, they fear uncertainty. There was a wonderful meta study of 330 studies on mankind's greatest fear. And it wasn't a dentist, it wasn't death, it wasn't public speaking, it was the future because with it comes uncertainty. Now, I know a, a large part of your work ultimately is how do you develop safely and fast? Wherever you're going through a process of change, there's risk. And generally, you need to get people collaborating. So yeah. I suspect on that basis, that's a really good clue as to where you need to start to look for why these programs go wrong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there are sort of techniques out there, different techniques, whether it's design thinking or discovery type activities where you 
get people together, your customers, people in your business, and you can myth bust that uncertainty a little bit, but you have to put some effort in. But ultimately, with a lot of these things, and you know, if you look at some of the most successful companies when they first started, you just have to begin somewhere and then set up to continue making it better. So that that sort of resilience to continue making it better means that you will eventually find that that thing that works and you'll eventually um, overcome that uncertainty. This then speaks to something else that's really critically important. Uh, my pal, Jerry Lemberg, rest his soul, always used to describe entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. <laughs> um, and far too many companies are established and go to market without a market fit, without really thinking about the customer. So let's work on that getting started piece. Let's deal with uh, how you screw up, first of all. What are the things not to do when you started? So I think particularly for traditional organizations, when, you know, they'll often start with something along the lines of a, I don't know, a workshop or a discovery phase. What they'll often do is put some of their best people on that who've been in that business for years and years and years. And that is almost, you know, whilst you do know that need those people in the process, you have to look externally for someone who has built a product from nothing and understands the principles of kind of custom development and creation. If you don't do that and you only listen to the powerful people who've always been there, you will probably recreate what you already have and not move on. So it's about bringing and actually genuinely empowering people who've done that before. And, and a lot of those people and a lot of that talent exists in the startup and the scale-up space and very rarely finds itself into traditional business. Or if it does, people are like, wow, who's this person? And they don't necessarily get listened to. This is where you have another problem. We see this in the diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion space, yeah. where you get all these companies, EY being one of them, that went out there and recruited for difference and then fired for not fitting in. Um, now, I don't know whether EY was um, uh, particularly guilty of that, but I know most large organizations do this. And um, I do a lot of work in the equity and inclusion space. And what we're finding there is law firms, accountancy firms, investment banks hire ethnic minorities. They hire people who just aren't you know, mainstream. And they make this big push for hiring these people, and then they make it impossible for them to stay. But my suspicion is that those innovators will find it very difficult to stay in those larger organizations. So how do you set them up to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's a great question. And I think, you know, some of it, I suspect, is you can work with third parties. So even though, you know, and, and you have to trust those third parties and give them at least some degree of investment to to, to prove something. Um, and that helps to, to, to change your way of thinking. But equally, I think, you know, there are techniques whether you create, you know, small kind of incubator type organizations and give them some space and deliberately have a different management team and a different investment profile. Or, you know, there are clients of ours that have gone to Silicon Valley and hired, you know, genuine scale up thinkers into the board and you change it from the top down but it's it's quite difficult to do but some degree of external inference some degree of space whether it's an organizational construct or some board sponsorship with sufficient remit you have to kind of 
protected a little bit from the traditional business and the traditional way of working. Okay. So you've now got a vision, because I'm assuming that has to be a starting point. What happens then? You need some degree of funding, and this is where you come back to the, I don't know, private equity venture capital mindset where it's sometimes a bit of a spread bet and you have to be willing to lose a lot to gain a lot versus your traditional earnings per share. You know, we'll only spend X amount on CapEx every year. So you you have to break out some funding and you have to break it away from the big back office SAP programs or whatever else it is that tends to hoover up a lot of the investment. So, So you need to secure some funding and some space. I think you need to then do a kind of discovery phase with external thinkers to agree below the vision, what are the what are the actual practical things we're going to go and build, we're going to go and do, and we're going to go and test. And then after that, you need a team of people. Usually it's multidisciplinary. By that, you've got some creative folks, some techie folks, some practical planning and, and organizing folks. And then you have to empower that team to get started and give it enough rope to, to go away, release something to test what you termed product market fit. Okay, so that then raises the question, what are the qualities of uh, a good leader it playing that role? I think they definitely have to have at least a vision of, of what in that industry would we term an unmet need. So, so what 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 is it that we could do that is genuinely going to change either the way the industry works or it's going to meet a need for a consumer that they've they've never had met. So one of our clients, Justy, sold the home delivery conundrum, right? And you know, obviously COVID came along to sort of, you know, hammer the nail home on that one. But but fundamentally somebody spotted the fact that actually that would be quite nice if someone could just deliver that to my house, right? So somebody has to try and find a spark of what is what is that unmet need that we can go after. And then equally, they then have to have the ability to lead a multidisciplinary team. So the creative thinkers, the organizers, the techies. So that leader needs to have an ability to put that together and empower it to work. But you're right, they, they need that vision, at least two or three hypotheses under that to go and test. So if I'm reading what you're saying correctly, they probably need a fairly diverse, broad range in their own history. Yeah. And to have a mindset that their job is to help the team come up with the solution. Yeah. And to put together a diverse team, which means that this person needs to be a diplomat, a referee of other people's children, Sometimes they have to be, uh, I remember Robin Williams uh, saying that they could sort everything out if they only had someone with the as a middle name um, <laughs> arbitrating. Um, and I think you know, the has to be the middle name of this person sometimes. And they also need to be open-minded and not want to be the hero. Yeah. And, and I would go so far as to say in a traditional organization, you pretty much have to bring someone in who's built two or three of these products and they've genuinely got the battle scars because I, I it's just that's too hard I think to learn from scratch no matter how gifted or how talented that person is in your business if you have somebody who's done that great if not you need to go and find someone who's built a custom product and, and done it successfully 
Okay, interesting. Do you mind if I challenge that a little? Yeah. Experience has taught me that knowing nothing is often a great starting point for a consultant and a manager because you come with the child mind and you're open and receptive. I think sometimes our history acts as a constraint because we're stuck attached to those old paradigms. And I'm seeing this a lot at the moment. One of the paradigms I'm seeing at the moment is that we should sell into the cold market. I just don't understand that. It costs you 18 times more, takes two to four times as long, and costs eight to 10 times as much. Yeah. I see people churning through their sales teams as if they are a machine and disposable. Yeah, it's a single-use people. And I see investment focused on the wrong end of the problem, leadership management focused on the wrong end of the problem. So my, my question is this, how, how do we get people to step back and just focus on first principles? What are the basics? And what are the unmet needs? How are they currently being met? What can we replace? For me, I, I, I interviewed Patty Hatter, who's SVP of professional services for Palo Alto. In one quarter, they grew their sales by 90% by introducing outcome-based pricing. Yeah. What a stroke of genius. Now, it took nerve to do that because there was a hell of a lot of resistance, but 90% increase year on year in one quarter just by offering that simple solution. That was by talking to customers. Yeah. So my, my question here is, why do we not spend more time at leadership and marketing levels talking to customers? I completely agree with you. I mean, that, I mean, I guess a lot of the methods, whether it's design thinking or discovery, usually involves a pretty intense discourse with, with customers. I think some of that then is filtering through what you hear. That needs to be a key part of it. And then, as you say, they've made quite a, a bold move. Obviously, it depends on your business model. Professional services, it's easier to make a bold move on pricing because that's, whilst it sounds big and it's risky, actually, there's not an enormous amount of change required to do that. It's some salespeople go with a different, you know, pricing and commercial approach to market. I think some of these big companies have more challenges to overcome than that. But I completely agree. Customer customer conversation, customer dialogue, really listening to them and really challenging the status quo is, is crucial, but it is so hard to do, particularly for a lot of businesses that have sold the similar thing to similar markets for a long time. Interesting. Okay. You mentioned design thinking a couple of times. It's not a term that I think many people will be familiar with, or they won't know what the ins and outs of it are. And um, Would you mind just giving us a minute on that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of other techniques as well, but it's basically saying you introduce different brains in, into a, a conversation and customers, and you put them together and you come up with creative ideas. And you can then organize them by emotions, by domain types. And coming out of that, you then try and prioritize towards ideas that you think will work, and then you'll go and prototype them and test them in some meaningful way. It doesn't have to be you know, a significant test. It might be sending an email to some customers to say, oh, would you appreciate if I delivered your pizza to your house? And three people might reply and say, actually, that's brilliant, right? At which point, you know, oh, hang on a minute, there's a little sliver of hope there. But it's different people from different backgrounds, including customers, 
having the freedom to create and then a bit of a funnel process to go and test those ideas. There are other techniques. It's not the be all and end all, but that's one of the more popular ones at the moment. And to your point, it's kind of getting you not just talking to your customers, but actually solving it with your customers. And that, I think, is really key. And that's where I think there's a huge trend with the smarter um, people in sales and uh, business is that they're looking to partner with their customers. And this requires a massive shift in thinking. You can't partner with your customer if you'll take money from anyone, whether they need it or not. Um, You can't partner with someone if you're only thinking about this quarter's quota. And so it requires a massive shift in thinking and behavior at leadership, management, operation, and sales level. And one of the challenges here is that lack of communication on a regular basis with the customer. Take, doing surveys doesn't work. Um, you know, g- giving them, uh, putting them on rails in a survey doesn't work. You need to leave lots of free text and you want to listen to the raw, unfiltered feedback from your customers yeah. and your prospects. But people don't like to hear that because very often they've just thrown 50 million or 300 million down a particular channel. And they're attached and they can't let go because they didn't speak to their customer early enough. That's why I think the sprints and the the little experiments are so key. Yeah, no, definitely. And there are other frameworks like a customer value proposition where you break that down into what do they feel? What are the blockers? What are the things that would make their life better? So there's ways of dissecting their thinking. But you do, you have to get it on on an emotional level, on a creative level, and actually try and find ways of then analyzing that and looking for something which feels like it could actually change things a bit. And then you test it. But yeah, there there are some great frameworks out there to do it. But also to your point, you know, if you've got a a budget to hit, a constrained set of resources, all of those things kill that type of dialogue. So you have to try and break some space aside and, and give a team some space to go and do that with a bit of freedom. Interesting. Okay. So I suspect there's quite a lot of conflict in those kind of conversations. So how do you make sure they're always constructive? Well, I think it's good to have some you know, degree of facilitation. So whether you use people who are skilled at those techniques or you work with a third party, that can help. I think the other side is you know, just by virtue of involving your customer in being part of the team to solve it, you take away some of that natural conflict. and. Obviously, there are different ways of constructing that, but that's this point of creating a sort of multidisciplinary team where they're all working towards the same end result. And then finally, it's data, right? So the people who are really good at this, um, and when they build up a head of steam, let's say one of these ideas sticks and it's and you get, you know, it's worth turning it into something more scalable. Then as as people start to use it, particularly in a digital sense, you get real life data. What are they doing? What are they touching? What are they buying? What are they not buying? When do they drop out of the process? And and you have to become a bit obsessed and and, and you have to be good at analyzing data. And that then turns it from this initial set of ideas and frustrations and wish I had into quite an informed process where you can scale it and, and deliver it based on data. But it takes a while to earn that, but that has to be where you look to get to. Okay. What are the red flags that tell you you're going down the wrong path? So, well, I, I think, 
I guess it depends, you know, back to your point around sort of business outcomes. What are you, what's the real business value you're trying to create? Are you trying to reduce friction in a process? Are you trying to increase new revenues in something you've never sold before? Are you trying to get people to buy more than they used to of the same thing? So when you know what that business value is that you're after or that competitive advantage you're trying to build, if none of the data is telling you that you're moving the dial on that, and some people talk about OKRs as different ways of measuring it. But if after a period of time of trying to change that, you haven't changed it, you need to take that as a red flag and you need well, to I was on a webinar last week talking about OKRs. And what really struck me was the lack of any focus on the customer. All the OKRs that the facilitator was talking about were about internal. And at no point was a customer involved in that process, which strikes me as being very dangerous because you could easily find your ladder up against the wrong wall. Yeah. Yeah. Look, then they, they clearly need a measure or an OKR, you know, an objective that has a customer and the customer's perspective in it, right? So they've obviously not got a balanced set of OKRs. And, and I think, again, like you say, if people are focused on cost or revenue or internal measures, then you're never going to get that right. I had a really interesting conversation last week, again, through the podcast. And one of the things that uh, came out was make sure that every job description for any job in the company has a window to the customer. Yeah. And that's a really simple, but almost never happens uh, move. And if everyone understands what contribution they're making to the customer, then you're focused on the right end of the problem. So often, we're just obsessed by looking internally. And coming up with ideas internally without speaking to customers or partners or competitors or collaborators. It just strikes me that we seem to be working harder than we need to because there's some weird virtue that tells you that working hard is more important than being effective. No, I couldn't agree more. I think we we did a piece for Gartner recently where we, you know, one of the cheat sheets was how do you create effective products, not efficient products, right? A, a lot of traditional businesses have been driven on a cost reduction or an efficiency mindset. For many years and i think over the last certainly three to five years a lot more of particularly scale-ups and startups are very driven around customer and revenue so new revenue new ideas so i don't think that comes easy to traditional businesses and a lot of it is efficiency over effectiveness to, to your point around that word but, but also it's i mean i you know a lot of my job is sales and there's often i try and set myself a metric if i don't talk to three customers a day it's a bad day and if I don't do that, it's really easy to find yourself solving this problem over here or managing this person over there. I think it's more comfortable to just turn inwards. It's really hard to force yeah. yourself not to. Um, and it's difficult to be vulnerable enough to invite that constructive criticism. I think every salesperson should finish every sales call with, have you achieved the outcome you intended from this conversation? And have you seen better? And that last question is so powerful. Uh, first of all, they're not expecting it. And secondly, you're going to learn. Your customers are your best teachers. Speak to them and have them tell you how you can improve. But again, I don't think there are enough people out there with a spine. You've got all these um, sort of spineless uh, salespeople going out peddling product, and they're, they're overcoming their fear by making those dials, some of them anyway, but they're not effective. And I, I don't want an efficient salesperson per se. I want an effective salesperson. Yeah. I want lazy salespeople who are intelligent and yeah. maybe turn up one day a week 
and do 300% of quota. As far as I'm concerned, they can take the other four days off. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. People, people are fixated on control, which you don't have anyway. It's a myth. Letting go of control is one of the uh, surest ways of getting it. But yeah. trying to impose your will on people just doesn't really work. Or what you get is substandard. Yeah, no, and it's it's an interesting time. So there are, you know, if you get these kind of digital products working well, you, you do get real insights on people's behaviors when they're using them, what they're pressing on, what they're doing and things, which which does myth bust that a little bit. But you can still never get away from there needs to be some human elements and human dialogue in most of these scenarios or someone in the team has to interpret that and take it the right way well i'm get, i'm gonna get you to dress up in your mystic meg outfit now so i want you to go crystal ball gazing i'm convinced that the last 18 20 months is the beginning of a renaissance in business and society and i think that uh, no i believe that um the real growth area will be in creating collaborative working environments in a virtual world where you can bring people together, optimize their time together, and uh, develop solutions to those gaps in your customer's need. And what's going to be really interesting is as technology becomes more and more complex, no single vendor, unless you may be an IBM, can be a one-stop shop. And my thinking is that the way the market will move is there'll be a lot of technologies coming out in the next couple of years that really exploit the virtual world, are about bringing people together and operating in parallel. They, they will work independently, but they will work concurrently as well. And you've got technologies like Cube, for example, Q-U-B-E, that yeah. Professor Eddie Oben came up with. And it's brilliant. You can get 200 people working on the same project at the same minute. And you're seeing companies like uh, Notion coming out of nowhere with Star Manager, and they're able to train 700 managers concurrently and create lasting behavioral change. Now, these are the kind of things I think are really going to come to the fore. It's going to make it very difficult for single product or niche vendors to operate independently. They're going to have to be collaborative. Yeah. So what are your thoughts in terms of the way the market's moving? Yeah, so no, I mean, completely agreed. Even if you take like a really traditional sort of business model of events, you've seen Hopin just raised 400 million and their valuation is about 7.7 .7 billion. All they did during COVID was create a virtual events scenario. Now, a lot of those events are about sales and networking, but but it's doing it in a collaborative way. So I think I think essentially, you know, there are, along with the examples you've quoted, that is clearly an area which is going to, you know, become massive. And even you look at the traditional businesses like kind of Google and Microsoft have put a huge investment into their teams and their G Suite to try and capture from the old spreadsheets, which still have a purpose, through to an actual collaborative environment for people to work. So totally agree with you. I think and and the point you raise around the speed of technology is there will be exponential technologies in there like artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence, whatever you want to call it, that is still reasonably immature, but it's only kind of going one way over the next period. And that will increase the, the ability for us to learn and do things faster. But it's going, to be, it's going to be slow. A lot of these exponential technologies take longer than you think. 
but but that that will affect it and affect our ability to sort of accentuate the individual collaboration side. But yeah, I mean, look, and the other side of this is technology. It just moves too fast for all of us. Even you know, I can't get my head around it, and I work in technology, right? So a lot of whether it's collaboration tools or flexible architectures, most of the companies that want to win in this space need to set up to work differently and to work in that sort of flexibility and accept you're probably going to change something in a year's time. And, and, and you just, to your point, you, you can't have a crystal ball anymore, right? You've almost got to set up to know you're going to have to change. Well, I, I think this there, there are two threads I want to tackle here. The first one is, and you've touched on it already, that I think what you need to do is you need to do a lot of parallel sprints. So yeah. they're short exercises, maybe two weeks to a month, maybe a little bit longer, but they're running parallel. These are wicked problems, and wicked problems, by their very nature, the first option will fail. Capture the yeah. data, learn the lessons. Second is that stakeholders differ, so they will differ in terms of who they are, and their opinions will change. Yeah. And the rules change as you play, and there are no perfect answers, only imperfect options. Yeah. And if you do not understand sales and marketing revenue operations as a wicked problem, you will just throw money and bodies and time at failed um, solutions that don't work. And then you're yeah. pulling your hair out and you're constant. Now you're creating that revolving door and you're not solving the real problem because you, all you're doing is you're trying to fix the symptom. So my, my key question at this stage then is how do you stop yourself from those acts of self-sabotage when all of your attachment and your emotion is dragging you back to the magnetism of the status quo? Yeah. When you know you have to change. Yeah. Well, it's, it's clearly very difficult. I mean, there's a statistic I like. There's, you know, I think with the Forbes quote, there's, I think, 52% of the Fortune 500 that existed 15, 20 years ago no longer exist. They've gone bankrupt or they've been bought or they've you know, they've been subsumed as a part of a digital disruption. So, well, I thought it was very funny that you said that Microsoft and Google are traditional businesses. Well, I mean, I suppose they were <laughs> right at the beginning of that disruption, but they, to some extent, through acquisition and reinvention, yeah. have managed to ride and, and evolve, right? But many haven't. And, and the, the statistics are staggering. So clearly, a lot of people are really, really not good at this. <laughs> and perhaps, you know, I'm surprised it hasn't had more attention than it has really at the sort of, corporate levels of because it's difficult business thinking and, and and so on and so forth but yeah I, I mean i think it's i you know i there's an element of bringing different people and different thinkers around the diversity agenda but genuinely do it and i'm repeating myself a little bit here but create space for them to get into that that sort of data driven informed view and unfortunately all of these companies have to hit a milestone or hit a budget target. So whenever you start, you need to create enough runway and enough money that, that hopefully they're going to get through a few failures, but they're going to have something successful for sure before your company gives up on it and goes back to implementing SAP or, <laughs> or putting more sales managers into the sales function or sending more emails to, to people to, to spam them. I, you know, I, I think it's really difficult, but yeah, you have to create enough space and enough money and, and I think bring the right people in and you will get there. There's enough examples out there of people succeeding. 
this is not something which should be a surprise, right? But, but it still is really hard for people to do it. Well, virtually everything in life, actually, is remarkably simple. It's when you complicate it and uh, you make assumptions and your ego gets in the way. Because selling, find people who have a problem and help them to fix it. Yeah. It's not really that sophisticated. I know I'm cutting out a lot of the graft, but the reality is that most of the graft that salespeople do nowadays is a waste. Yeah. You know, on my LinkedIn profile, I say, I will help you eliminate 95% of the waste in your sales process. It's not difficult to do. I've, I've In 18 years, 19 years now, I've gone into companies and I've never, not once, been able to find less than 400% increase in their revenue overnight. Because it's there, because I, I know what to look for and I know which questions to ask, but most people don't. And so what I'm seeing is people fixated on trying to do more of the old thing and fighting the old, the last war. Yeah. So how can you develop your business safely and fast whilst also innovating and disrupting? You know, the unlock is, is probably technology and the way to do that, you know, and it's, again, is, you know, the way to do that is you create a team, a multidisciplinary team that can do that continuous customer dialogue, discovery, whatever technique you want to use, design thinking. And they're, they're churning away and feeding the hopper. In the hopper, you need to put a first-class development team that can take that, turn it into some specific things, features sometimes they call it, and build it safely, and then release that into production which means a person can go and touch it. And obviously for a traditional business, that needs to be a certain standard, right? Because you've got a brand and you've got a quality control bar, which is probably higher than some of those startups that you're up against. So you do have a disadvantage there. But you can do that by putting in robust development teams that know how to do that, to test it um, and to release it. And, and these teams are, are amazing. If you get them working well, you know, a lot of companies are on all cycles where they produce something to the market every six months or every four months. Uh, these teams, when they're working well, they can, they can literally iterate through new experiments on you know, hundreds in, in a sprint if you have a, the right size team. But they can certainly release new things every two weeks and actually get some feedback quite quickly. But, but that takes an investment in a technology team over time until they get to that velocity. But I'm not talking years. You're talking three months four months to get to something. And then once they're there, you've got a bit of a safe cycle there to continue to innovate. So I think the other obstacle to this is perfectionism. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I don't really need to go into much more detail than that. In my experience, that perfectionism is... And um, Have you read Brene Brown's um, research on shame and perfectionism? I, I haven't, but I would throw that sort of risk appetite risk aversion in the mix there as well with the traditional oh, yeah. business there's a thousand things that can go wrong right and, well, and actually a lot of those rightfully so you need to care about them right but interestingly yeah. enough she says that uh, perfectionism is a byproduct of childhood shaming so you know so someone you know the art teacher said that's a very interesting dolphin when you were drawing a horse people have a tendency to carry a lot of this baggage and so i'm really interested in the pastoral side of uh, management and leadership in terms of their coaching and their psychological understanding of the team and the dynamics. That, as you say, is probably quite a significant challenge in a traditional business. So other, other than 
you know, we would always advise bringing someone in who's done this kind of custom product before and they've got some of the skills and techniques in place to deal with that. But but the way the way you do it, I think, is if you can break what you're trying to achieve down into something which is deliberately a test. So you protect yourself by calling a prototype, a minimum value proposition, whatever you want to do, and then everybody understands that and you approve that through the governance. You can use smaller pockets of customers to test this stuff on, right? You don't have to unleash it on your entire customer base. Often you create a safe environment. Obviously, what you don't want to do is, is sort of game the answer, but you can release it to smaller groups of people and take away some of the risk um, until you have sufficient degree of confidence that you can then um, open it up to, to a wider audience. So those are some of the practical techniques with the risk in that and avoiding the perfectionism piece. But you're right, it is, it is an ongoing challenge. Given that we know that these things, uh, the environment is likely to change over time, how much effort needs to go into planning the business and the team that you're going to become in six months, a year, two years, three years, five years? I think, well, I, there's, um, I think most big companies now need to accept they need to build a material product organization, which means their marketing strategy technology business needs to adopt what we would call a kind of product mindset. So you need to be planning for a material change in your business. Now, every company is different. Not every company needs to build lots of their own technology, but I would say that everybody needs to have some IP now, which means it's hard to copy or it gives them a competitive advantage. So you have to long-term plan for significant investment in that space. But in the short term, I think you've got to put two teams on the ground, at least 20 people, and you've got to give them probably nine to 12 months around a specific set of hypotheses with enough money to run. And we're not talking hundreds of millions here. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the sort of you know, millions, but you, know, you can do something pretty impressive for five to six, maybe less, but you've got to you've got to do a meaningful test to build something that creates some new revenue or a new experience. And then you can take it back to your leadership team and say, look what we did. I think there's no other way of doing it. You can't win this through textbooks and theory and strategy. And it's, I think you have to do something that gets people excited and they can see that two weeks ago, it was a bit crap. Two weeks later, it was a bit less crap. Four weeks later, oh, this is quite interesting. You know, 12, 16 weeks later, hang on a minute, we're doing a million in revenue on something we never were before. When, when you get to that, it's really hard to ignore and it's quite exhilarating. But you've got to be putting at least two, two three teams aside and giving them six to nine months to run at it, if not a little bit longer. And then I think from my experience of being through this four or five times, you will create a degree of momentum and pull that is hard to ignore. But that's the minimum you can get away with, I think, if you want to go and build a product and change people's mindset. Okay. So in terms of building this team, you've got people from sales, marketing operations, customer success. How, what, what's the cadence that you need to have these teams engaged amongst themselves with? So usually you'll have those people from the business along with people 
outside and customers, and they can get away with, you know, two or three workshops over a couple of weeks and, 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 and creating the, the vision over the first month or so. And then their cadence is actually becomes less and less. But what you what you have is usually a kind of two weekly sprint, which has certain ceremonies around it for that team. But every couple of weeks, you show people what you did. And those people from the business come and see it. And then every two weeks in that intervening time, they continue to do the discovery and the innovation. But the cadence or the team is very intensive from a development perspective. But from the innovation and discovery, it's probably more one or two workshops every two weeks or every month and continuously checking in on, you call it a showcase where people show you what they actually did and how people used it and what the data was. So this is effectively taking the Kaizen principle of constant, never-ending improvement. Basically, um, yeah. Making it iterative throughout the development cycle. Absolutely. And what that does is it drives some degree of autonomy in the team to innovate. So they have to be allowed to innovate. If there's only one smart person, you call them a hippo, right? Highest, most impaired, important person in the room, right? If you ever have that, you'll probably kill any sense of innovation, right? <laughs> you have to empower that team to innovate. And it might be something silly like you got a shopping basket. So the average amount is people put two things in. How do we get them to put three? Go and innovate. How do you get them to put an extra thing in? Is it pricing? Is it... The journey's too difficult. Do we offer them a discount at the last minute before they purchase? So really simple techniques. You have to allow that team to innovate, but you also have to have a collection of customers and senior people inputting periodically based on what you achieve and giving them the bigger, chunkier tasks. So it's a sort of bottom-up, top-down process, fairly fast, iterative cycles where you test and learn, test and learn, as you describe. And and it does take you three or four months before you really start to produce the goods. So if you're going to give up in that phase, don't start. So there's an element you've got to give them long enough. Again, I see this happen all the time. People aren't patient enough. VC and private equity aren't patient enough. Leadership aren't patient enough. Management's not patient enough. Salespeople want to keep their job yeah. and get paid and pay their rent. Everyone's in a hurry. And it just leaves everyone burnt out. Yeah. And you know, it, it's rare that this kind of thing works where people are rushing really? around like headless chickens. And what I do see very often is they hit their R&D target, but they don't hit their commercial target. So they, these might be VC or private equity funded businesses. And then they go out cap in hand to get some more money because they're doing all the great things on the sprint, but sales isn't performing. Now, there are two reasons for that. One, your salespeople are shit. Or two, your product has no fit. Yeah, And the problem there is that more often than not, they blame the sales people, and often they aren't very good. I'll grant you that. Um, but that's a byproduct of terrible management and even yeah. worse leadership. So it's not the salespeople's fault by and large. They own some of that problem because they own their own learning and development. But the challenge here is that you've got so many organizations that essentially the main driver is, what's the, uh, not entropy, the other one. Inertia. Most large organizations, uh, the biggest driving force is inertia. They're coming to a grinding halt. Now, that I find really exciting. Coming back right to the top of our conversation, I cannot wait 
for the next generation of companies, and I think they will be uh, alliances rather than individual vendors. Yeah. Um, I think what we're going to get is small groups of closely aligned but non-competing providers working collaboratively, and they will be made up of A players, and they will pull each other through fr- without any friction into yeah. their accounts because there is trust on all three sides. The partner is already trusted by the customer, and then they introduce you, and you are trusted by the partner as well, and your job is to protect the introducer's relationship with the prospect. Now, if you understand that, then you can do some amazing things, but you have to slow down. And what I don't see is people asking the question, for example, if you're a privately held company, why do you need to work on quarterly reporting cycles? Yeah. Well, there no. is no rhyme or reason to it other than you worship at the church of finance on the altar of shareholder value. And it's all bollocks. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. You and end up with a minuscule number of companies making it and most of the, the rest dying on their ass with people losing their houses and their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think like, there's lots of challenges with the venture capital and other models, a lot, of, a lot of these people are starting from scratch. And if you invest in 102, make it it's a good investment and 98 don't. I think the sad thing is some of the traditional businesses, they have the assets or the content or the customer base that these people would cut their left arm off for, right? Yeah. But they're not necessarily using it because they're, as you say, they're stuck with earnings per share or CapEx and OpEx ratios and various other constraints. But I mean, if you look at the likes of some of the TV providers, Disney, Sky, that have really successfully taken amazing content and replatformed it onto these new TV platforms where we can't go anywhere else but use them. That's an example of where they've taken an asset that it's hard for anybody else to, to achieve and done really well. There hasn't been as much disruption in that space. I think the challenge is on the rest. How do you do that? And as you say, you know, the private companies have much more fluidity about over which period of time they invest. I don't think Uber made a profit for eight years, right? So, But a lot of the smaller startups really struggle that they're starting from nothing. I think there's some real assets there for the traditional businesses if they could learn to exploit them that take some of the risk away. It's really interesting because every business is trying to mitigate their challenges around time, money, and risk. And it's not really about risk. It's about certainty. What people want is certainty. They don't like risk because they confuse it with sacrifice. Risking is going from lower to higher value where you may lose some or all of what you've got. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower and there is no upside. Yeah. And I believe we need to learn how to optimize our risk and think we need to stop punishing people for fucking up. It's part of the human condition. It's universal, unavoidable. And so the only thing you punish people for there is hiding failure and their mistakes. I took that from Ray Dalio, who keeps a failure log. And every week they go through their failures and anyone who hides something gets fired on the spot. But if you fuck up and you admit it, then you fix it. There's no no love lost. It's just crazy that we punish people. We de-risk the business by eliminating innovation. That's stupid. And it, yeah, I mean, the speed and pace of change as a result of technology, it just means we have to adopt that approach now, right? There is no other way of doing it unless you have Harry Potter on your team. The reality is you you just have to, yeah. 
you have to accept that you're going to have lots of failure and how do you deal with that? Okay, one, one final point in that case before we wrap up. You keep talking about data, but in my experience, most people haven't got a clue how to use their data. And I, I went to a dinner in December 2019 and the lead analyst for Forrester around big data said that only 7% of companies use their data in any way close to well, Yeah, and, which means 93% bugger it up or just get overwhelmed, and they don't know what the hell they're doing with it. So how do you pick the right data? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really difficult. So I think, firstly, I I do have a lot of sympathy because it is a bit like the Wild West, right? So you've got different software companies with different rules that don't always integrate with each other. You've got GDPR, you've got stuff out there that people try and make you buy. So actually bringing together any sort of decent set of data across a broad topic is really difficult right now right but i think it, i think it goes a little bit back to what what matters to you you know if you've done your bit of innovation with your customers and you've worked out some business value or some okrs that you think are a good balance then you just need to start measuring them in a controllable fashion particularly if it's around a new product and you can ring fence it a little bit and then you need to learn how to get good at it. I think if you try and take on the big data challenge, I think that's where you probably get a bit unstuck and you suffer um, because it is so difficult and so many different rules and compartments out there. The other side is slowly over time, that, that company needs to adopt some sort of consistent model, nomenclature, and try and put a bit of organization that every small change they make they make it towards something more consistent and, and accept that that's, that's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. But, but, but you, if, if you focus small and you put it around one of these teams and start measuring what you can measure, I think you can make some, some progress there. Well, what would you recommend people read or watch or listen to around the subject? I think in terms, in, in terms of the sort of unmet need high-level perspective and how do you maybe figure out what should be in your OKRs. There's the likes of the strategizer stuff from Alexander Ostevala, I think it is, which is really nice and simple and understandable and deals with some of these topics. From a data perspective, I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't I think I would be more inclined to get started and go and start a product and start measuring it and and, and actually you know, to try not to go out there and, and be too theoretical and, and read your way into an answer. You need to get started and start measuring something and, and living by those results. So I think that would be my advice. But I think there are probably others who are more expert than me on the whole data question. Um, I understand how to build a product and change a business, but it's definitely a key part of it. And I would keep an open mind that I'm sure there is some great stuff out there to read as well. Okay, so you've got a golden ticket. You can go back in time and advise the idiot Matt, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that he would have undoubtedly ignored? It's a, it's a really difficult one, I think. I mean, to some extent, I, I probably am better for the experiences I've been through. So I wouldn't really want to, <laughs> really wouldn't want to have got rid of much of my experience. I think I probably could have moved on a little bit quicker from EY, just on the basis that there was a lot of activity going on out there in this startup scale-up space. And, and I probably, if I'd found four or five years to, 
to get into that before I had a mortgage. I think that probably probably would have been a good thing to do. Speaking to a guy earlier, he just bought his first house in 2019, million quid. <laughs> but um, but I, I it's on my entry ticket. level housing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's on my ticket for five ten years time if I manage to do a good job to to go and do that on the other side of the mortgage. Hopefully, so so absolutely, I'm I'm not going to not do it. I will do it at some point. Um, and I have some vicarious involvement in some startups and things now. So I think I would have fitted that in before I got too far in into my commitments and responsibilities. But also, to be honest with you, like. I don't know. I think experience is a great thing wherever it comes from. So I, I wouldn't want to swap too much of it, if I'm honest. Okay, okay well, that's fair. Uh, maybe learn faster. Yeah. Uh, so what's the best <laughs> lesson? That's a natural limitation, I think. As opposed <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> what, what, what's the best lesson in the year ahead? I think what, for me or for others? For you. For me, I think actually, you know, a big part of, of my job is trying to convince clients to do some great interesting work with us so i think reminding myself of of what you discussed and what we discussed is it's effective not efficient so i need to 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 make sure we have those conversations that matter and not get too insular and too focused on method and various sort of things it's get out there and talk to people and try and inspire people to do this stuff right because as you say when you actually unpick it it's not that complicated and actually put a lot of my effort in how do you get started. Very interesting. Okay, um, Matt, how can people get hold of you? You can email me on matt.neil at cyclum.com is the best. That's C-I-K-L-U-M. C-I-K-L-U-M. Um, and it's Neil, N-E-A-L. Um, so email me, visit our website, um, and you can get a link through to us um, or, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Really, really happy to engage with people who want to talk about this topic. We've got bags of passion, reasonably strong experience here. From Are you hiring at the moment? Yeah, yeah, we're always hiring. We're growing a lot. We're, we're sort of fast-growing company. And this industry itself is, is incredibly kind of hot right now. I think I would go so far as to say having demand outstrips supply, which is a nice place to be but so yeah we're hiring we've got bags of passion we've got some brilliant examples of where we've done this stuff so we've got loads to share and really happy to just talk or help whichever is easier excellent matt neil thank you no worries take care so this is marcus kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you found this useful insightful then please like comment share and subscribe and if you feel the urge pop over to apple Podcasts and leave an honest review one star five star three stars whatever just leave an honest review and um i'm in the throes of revamping the podcast so if you can suggest ways that we can improve it or guests that you'd like me to interview then please do get in touch my email is marcus at laughs in the meantime stay safe and happy selling bye-bye